Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Hemda. Why would we be friends? Obviously this isn't working. I looked at your penis. I didn't like it. We're going to move on. (laughs) That and more. But before that, folks, there is a book that has come to mean so much to me in the past couple of years. It just never ceases to amaze me how much wisdom and support are between this book's covers. The book is Grief Day by Day by Jan Warner. Simple practices and daily guidance for living with loss. Now, full disclosure, Jan Warner is a very dear friend of mine. When Jan shared the story of the loss of her beloved husband, Artie, in my storytelling class a decade ago, I was so blown away that the two of us ended up becoming really good friends. Now, Jan has a background in therapy, but that's not the only way she gained all the insights you'll find in Grief Day by Day. Jan Warner started a Facebook group called Grief Speaks Out, which has almost 2.5 million likes and followers from all over the world who share about how they're coping with the loss of a spouse or a child, or a sibling, or even a pet. Listen, my father passed away in July of 2020, and I can admit right now, I am still processing that. You know, what I love about this book, Grief Day by Day, is that it's so real. There's a lot of real talk in it, open to any page, and there are insights about the joy of remembering the good times, or the wildness of mood swings, or the love you share with others while you're grieving, or the unhealthier coping mechanisms, or numbness, or the exhausting overwhelm from dealing with so much. You know, since my father died, my mother has gone through grief day by day twice already, and I think she's going to go for a third time through. It's that full of love and genuinely surprising insights and encouragement, not to mention quotes from some of the greatest writers of all time on the many, many aspects of grief. So wherever books are sold, go get Grief Day by Day. Simple Practices and Daily Guidance for Living with Loss by Jan Warner. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is R.L. Burnside behind me now. And hey, I don't know if you follow us on any of our socials. If you do, we're at Risk Show anywhere you can think of. But you might have seen that we are announcing there's a special page of our website now. For anyone who's interested in pitching us a winter holiday story, 
There's a one-minute video I made about it on the Risk YouTube channel, but also if you just go to risk-show.com slash holiday stories, everything you need to know is there, and that includes anyone you know, anyone you know, can go over there to risk-show.com slash holiday stories and learn how to pitch us a story over there. These are stories that can be about Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, the solstice, New Year's, any of that. Maybe even Black Friday or just stories that are very much about winter itself. Get on over there and tell everyone you know to get on over there. Wristashow.com slash holiday stories. Now, we're calling this week's episode Troubleshooting. In a little bit, we're going to hear a story that was shared by Hemda of Keith and the Girl. The Keith and the Girl podcast has been around since 2005, and like Risk, it remains independent. I am so impressed and proud of them. Now, this story that Hemda told was shared at the 2014 Los Angeles Podfest. So we're going back in the archives for that one. The room, I remember, was so small that it's bound to sound like almost no one's there because almost no one's there. But I really enjoyed hearing the story again recently. But before that, a story that was shared at our most recent live show at Caveat in New York City. Jude Trader Wolf is a favorite of ours on Risk, and she's currently organizing an online show called Hunger Comes Home for the Holidays on Tuesday, November 30th, a benefit for a food bank in Long Island. Here's Jude now with a story we call Curses. So I'm in this sketchy, creepy neighborhood in downtown Newark, New Jersey, that is a gauntlet between the hospital where I work as a therapist on the psych unit and a deli that has these fantastic chicken salad sandwiches. And I would never be in this neighborhood that is always isolated and kind of spooky by myself, except I really want one of those sandwiches. And next week, I start a new job in Manhattan my dream job. It is seven years of study and doing free internships and shitty jobs just to get good references. And I want to be moving toward that job with excitement and confidence. But I feel like I'm walking toward the future the way I'm walking through this neighborhood, threatened and kind of spooked and uncertain because of something my mother said at my father's wake. My dad died just five months before, and my mom is in a terrible grief spiral, and I'm so connected to her emotions. She really was my first client. She's a person that doesn't have much control over her emotions. She leaned on me a lot. Think Blanche Dubois. If Blanche Dubois raised eight kids on a farm in Wisconsin. That's my mother. And, uh, and I really feel for everything she's going through. At the wake, she said, there's a lot of lonely nights ahead for me and you're 28, and you don't have a husband or children, so that's God's way of saying that it's time for you to come home, and we'll be two lonely ladies together. (laughs) 
And just about every day there's a message on my machine saying something like, I just made dinner by myself. Loneliest feeling in the world. Well, you'll move home and then we'll be two lonely ladies making dinner together. And I am pretty resolute that my goals and visions are just as valid as somebody that's got, you know, a husband and children or a spouse like my siblings do. But then this weird coincidence happens. Right at the time I am interviewing for this new job, I lose my apartment. And I don't have money lying around for a big security deposit in a Manhattan apartment. I, I'm pretty jammed up trying to figure out a place to live. And it starts to feel like maybe this is a sign that I'm supposed to give up my dream and help her out. And then this woman named Grace, a social worker in the hospital, says, why don't you move in with me? She's getting this celebratory post-divorce big apartment in Weehawken. And she says, you can rent a room from me, and it's a place I could never have afforded. It's closer to the city. And that feels good, but that pressure every day from my mom is wearing on me. And so... I got this going for me, but it feels like I'm hanging by a thread. So I'm hurrying through this neighborhood, and I see this house ahead, a little brown bungalow with the word psychic flashing on and off in the window. And there's a woman sitting in a weathered lawn chair in front of this house. And as soon as she sees me, she hops up, and she, she goes, Miss, Miss, come closer. There's something important I have to tell you. Come, come, come closer. And I'm like, no, no, I'm on lunch hour. I got I to go. I don't have time. And I keep walking quickly. And I come out of the deli, and she's standing in my path. She's about right up to my chin, built like a tank, piercing brown eyes, and she says, Miss, you cannot avoid this. Spirit compels me to tell you, someone put a curse on you. Someone put a curse on you. And I feel so anxious already, and her intensity just gets under my skin, and I, I get away from her, navigate around her, walking as fast as I can, and I'm thinking, she's a fake psychic, and there's no such thing as curses. And I get to Broad Street in Newark, which is a big main drag, and this bus comes careering around the corner very fast, hits this big puddle of water that happens to be right in front of me, square in the middle, sending this water eight feet in the air, and over my head, head to toe, covered in disgusting city street water. Not the people half a block away from me waiting for the bus, not the people standing two feet over here, no. Me, where I am standing, I am covered with disgusting city street water. So when I get back to work, I feel really shook up. And my head nurse Clarice says, darling, you've got mud in your hair. And I tell her about it and I say, coincidence or curse? And she says, we are mental health professionals. That is a coincidence. It feels like a curse, but that is a coincidence. By the way, here's a message. Call this guy back. He has been calling you for the past hour. So I call this guy back. Hi, this is Jack Sherman, your student loan officer. We've been trying to reach you by mail for the past 18 months, and you haven't responded. You, do you still live at 407 North Downer, Milwaukee, Wisconsin? And I say, no. Don't you think it's weird you reach me at a job in New Jersey? <laughs> And you have a Milwaukee address on me? He goes, yes, we do think it's weird, and it looks a little something like fraud. Jude, your payments are $200 short. You're not responding to our letters. And I said, I never miss a payment. One entire paycheck goes to pay my student loans. And he says, well, they're $200 short, and now you're in default. So we could call the whole loan, or you could make $800 super payments until you catch up. And I feel like somebody sucker punched me. And I look at Clarice, 
and I say curse, <laughs> or coincidence. She says, we are mental health professionals. That is weird, <laughs> but it's coincidence. I go home, packing up my apartment, blinking light on my answering machine. Hi, it's mom. I went to a funeral today, and I thought the person in the coffin was better off than all of us. If you don't move home, I think I might jump off the barn. And now I think, I am being cursed because if I take this job and stay out here, I'm a terrible person if my mother jumps off the barn. But if I go home and save my mother from jumping off the barn, I'm going to have a terrible life. There's another message on machine. Hi, it's Grace. Oh, I've been trying to find you at work, but I wanted to talk to you in person. Listen. Jack and I are getting back together, so I'm not going to be signing the lease on that apartment in Weehawk. And after all, I know you need some notice. You've got to find somewhere to live. Well, yay us, and good luck to you. And now I feel the bottom has dropped out of any doubts that I'm in big trouble because I have nowhere to put all this stuff in three days. And I think to myself, I am a licensed mental health professional. And tomorrow, I got to see a fake psychic about a curse. <laughs> and I go to see her. I feel like, you know, wearing sunglasses and a hat. I can't believe I'm going to this woman's house. And she's sitting outside in her weathered lawn chair. She's like, come, come, come. Yes, I knew you'd come. Yeah, I knew you'd come. Spirit compels me. And I go in and I say, what did you do to me? Ever since you pursued me the other day, Everything has gone to shit in my life. What did you do? And she said, you give me some information, you give me $800, I take the curse off of you. And I think, $800? Fake psychic, fake psychic, fake psychic. And I think, okay, student loan and, my, and keeping my credit from going in the crapper, decursify my life. Uh, student loan, decursify. Uh, I think... I can't afford you. I'm going to have to do it yourself, my decursification. Something I have absolutely no idea how to do. So I go back to my apartment and I feel in the pits of despair. And I call this guy that I've been dating who lives on Long Island. And he says, So how's the move going? And I just lose my mind. And I tell him everything, and I say, I think I'm a bad person. It's not a curse. Maybe it's karma. But if it is a curse, it's my mother storming the heavens with rosaries and masses and novenas to St. Jude to ruin everything and just narrow the path so there's only one thing that I can actually do, and that is go home. Am I a shitty person that I don't want to do that for her? And he says... I don't think you're a shitty person. I think this Grace might be a shitty person, but you're not a shitty person. And look, if you're cursed, then all roads are going to lead back to her anyway. So why don't you do what you want to do right now? Do the thing you feel like doing. Park your stuff in my garage. Stay with me until you figure out the next step, but start your job on Monday. And this begins the gauntlet of the unknown. I move my stuff into his place. I stay with him for a little while. It's a long commute to this job, which turns out to be everything I hoped it would be. And I want to hold my own. But I meet somebody there that needs a cat sitter for a month, so I do that. I'm making these big payments to my student loans, so it takes a while to save up money for a place or to get a roommate or something. And then somebody needs a, a sublet, and somebody else needs a house sitter. And 
I go from person to person to person in this kind of network of human kindness, of human connection, of people I didn't know existed at the beginning of this journey. Until I land at an apartment two blocks from my new job. And the thing about this whole experience is, feeling cursed is weird. When you feel cursed, just having an average day feels absolutely amazing. Like if something doesn't go wrong, you feel so happy. And if something goes great, it feels like a fucking miracle. It's like, ah, wonderful. And uh, when I'm sitting in this place that I couldn't imagine, living with a person I didn't know existed, And I don't have an answering machine at this new place. My mom actually hasn't been able to call me for a long time. And I think, I always wonder, is my mom going to be okay? And there's a message from her one day, one of the first ones, of course, on the machine. And she says, if you try to call me between five and eight, I probably won't be here because I found a lonely lady to take care of for a job. I got a job. And I think... I can't know for sure that my mom is going to be okay, but maybe that's a sign. Thank you. I put a spell on you. What? But why? Because of mine. Oh, I forgot all about that. I have a very disorganized mind. Stop the things you do. Stop the. Wait, like podcasting? <laughs> What's up? What? I like. Oh no, let's breathe in serenity. Yeah, I can't stand. What? I like jogging. I can't stand. Well, I know how bunions can be. No, put me down. <laughs> I would never. I've always loved the world of you. I put a spell on you. Oh, right. From before. But what was the reason again? Because you're mad. Right. Ah! Oh. oh, dear. Ah! Oh. You do have a way with words. When I was 15, my parents took us to the Catskills. And when I arrived, when I hung out, it really just became this stereotypical thing. I don't know if a lot of you know what the Catskills is. It's like where city Jews go. It's about two, two and a half hours up where they go to vacation in Kvetch. So I'm there, and right away, old Jewish grandmothers come up to me, and I'm by myself, and they start having me look through their grandson's pictures. And I, you know, I really, I pretended so hard to be so insulted, like, that's not the way it works. I could find my own man, you know, all this kind of stuff. But I was so thrilled, because I had never done anything before in my life sexually. I hadn't kissed anyone, I hadn't been asked out really, I was, I was only getting you know, attention from like random whistles on the street, and I was 15 years old and I felt so behind. I felt like I was 
the only 15-year-old who had never done anything sexually, never held a hand, never, never hugged, you know, all kinds of weirdly or whatever. And I was, you know what I mean. <laughs> and I was craving it so badly, and I really thought this would just be forever. And my parents were no better. They were like, you got your period four years ago. I don't know what's happening. They were Middle Eastern, very traditional people. And I had three years to get it together and get my fertility on the run. It was time to go. So everyone's on the same page. We're all trying to hook me up with someone. It was the original Match.com. There was no luck there. I don't know if their grandsons weren't there or it just wasn't clicking, but I did click with someone. And by click, I just meant someone was willing to talk to me by the pool. His name was Jim. And he started hanging out with me. And he was tall. He was six foot two. He was filled out for a 15 year old. He was very handsome. There was no denying. He looked like a prince. And I felt nothing. Nothing was happening down there. And I was wet constantly as a teenager. And just nothing was waking up. And, and he asked me to go for a walk. And I know that means go for a walk, find somewhere to make out, you know, that no old people are watching and let's do this. And I felt nothing and I said, yes, absolutely. Because I just wanted to do something. I thought maybe it would just kick in when my tongue got in his mouth or something. It, Something must have happened. It was happening for everybody else. This guy looked good. So we walked, we found a place behind some bushes, and we sat down, and we made out. And here it was. It was my first kiss, and I knew it was coming. It was still very awkward, and it was the worst. It was exactly what you think a 15-year-old kiss would be, except I was 15 and I didn't know that. And so it was really, and just all in my mouth, and he's tall, and I'm like, what is happening? Oh my God. And I thought, this can't be it. This isn't what the movies made it look like it feels like. This can't be what everyone's looking forward to, what they're doing all the time, what they're spending all their time on. This is terrible. And then he started feeling me up, and I'm like, all right, let's see if that jazzes something up. <laughs> and it wasn't happening, and then he was going further, and I'm like, ooh, I didn't think anyone would touch my vagina yet, but okay. And he's, he's down in my pants, and I say down in my pants very specifically, because I want to say fingering, but I don't think that's what he was doing. I have no idea what he was doing. He had no idea what he was doing. I don't blame him. Again, we were 15, but I was just like, blah, 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 just, just weirded out. But when it was done, I felt very satisfied. Not in a I came way, oh my God, no. <laughs> but I was satisfied. Now I had a story, I had a makeout session, I knew what it was like. I didn't have to lie anymore about my experience. I was a woman. So I really wasn't interested in this guy, but we started dating because I think that's what you do. Again, I'm just going from what the movies are telling me. So the problem with our dating was he lived about an hour, hour and a half from my house. We're 15 years old. We don't have a license. No one can drive. So his parents had to drop him off in the morning. And I am not a morning person. At eight in the morning, my date came over to Queens. And my parents were thrilled. Here is this Jewish guy. I'm on the right path now. We're going. And my God, I sound so much more Queens telling this story than I normally sound in real life. Please talk to me after so you can hear that. This is not my true accent. It's just the 15-year-old in me coming out. <laughs> 
So anyway, um, we were there, and he came in at 8 in the morning. 8 in the morning, I have a date, and he doesn't know what Queens is about. He lives in Suffern. I don't know if that's ironic to him or to me, but the word is Suffern. So it's 8 in the morning, and I'm thinking, what can we do? We happen to have a hoop in the back. We're playing hoops. We, uh, there's a movie theater by my house. We go to the movie theater. We make out. I still don't know the ending to any movie I saw. We went to the park, we made out, we went to the mall, we made out, and all this time I'm waiting for the makeout session to click in and for something to happen, and all the while he's putting his hands under my shirt and down my pants, and I'm just like, what does coming even mean? I, am I doing it and not realizing it? I, I, this can't be it. Everyone's so thrilled about this. Are they all lying? Come on, something, wake up. And it wasn't happening. And At some point, this is over the course of like three dates because we're 15, it just sounds like a lifetime because it was to me. And so at some point, just like any 15-year-old boy, he starts going, touch my dick, touch my dick, come on, touch my dick. Come on, touch my dick, I touch your, yeah, you do. Touch my dick, touch my dick. All right, I will touch your dick. Tomorrow, when you come over at 9 a.m., I have an appointment to look and touch at your dick and I am thrilled. Okay, so that morning came, we went up to my room in my house, my mother's vacuuming downstairs, and uh, just flashback for a second, I told my friend that I was about to do this for the first time, and she said, you know how to do it, and she did the universal jerk-off sign, and I was like, oh yeah, oh totally, but I was like, yes, there was a sign, and she told me, because I had no idea there wasn't internet, okay, in my defense. <laughs> there was no, this is like the early 90s. And so she did that, and I was like, oh my God, thank God I told someone I was going to do this because they saved me from literally petting this guy's penis <laughs> until something happens. I have no idea. So now I know, here we go, and I guess that makes sense. That would, you know, that would do something, whatever. So... We're in my room, my mother's vacuuming downstairs, and she goes, don't do anything. And I goes, what would I do? <laughs> I don't even know what to do. Um, so he, he takes off his pants and his underwear at the same time. It's very sexy. <laughs> and he sits on my bed, and he lays back, and his feet are touching the floor. So all I have is like penis, like it's some sort of like compass. And he's laying back, and he's not looking, and I'm like... Here we go. I swallow. Not that kind of swallow. We're not there yet. I just, I wrap my fingers around his penis. By the way, his penis smelled like penis. And it was very confusing. Wrap my hand around it and started doing the motion. But my face was like, I guess I'm doing the right thing. He did this to me. I'm pretty sure it felt like this. And and he can't see me. His eyes are closed. I guess because he's enjoying it. Again, I don't know. And so I keep going. The face stays the whole time. And then he opens his eyes. And I didn't realize you could open your eyes while I masturbate you. And he was horrified because the look of terror on my face was still there. (laughs) And I felt so bad, but I was kind of glad because he put his pants on and was like, I don't think you want to do this. And I was like, oh, you know, yeah, I want to do it. This is feeling good. 
to me. <laughs> but it was over. He knew. There was no lube at the time. I didn't even know lube was a thing. I would have spit on it. I would have something. Somebody give me a clue. You guys are so lucky there's the internet. So he pulls his pants up. He complains about blue balling. I just get tired of everything. He leaves my house. We never see each other again, but he was so polite about it. He, <laughs> it's true. He called me up to break up with me. Still, I hadn't felt any feelings for him still. If he's listening, you're so nice, and I'm really sorry. And I hope someone's touching your dick now. But, uh, <laughs> and... And so he calls me up and he says, you know, I, I just don't think it's working out. I feel like we're not compatible, blah, 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 da, 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 nice things, very reasonable, very logical, wonderful. I don't even know if I'm listening because I know it's over. I really don't care. And he says, but let's stay friends. And I said, I don't, I don't see how we could be friends. I don't, I don't I, why? And I don't realize that I'm being Queens, New York, me. Like, why would we be friends? Obviously, this isn't working. I looked at your penis. I didn't like it. We're going to move on. I had my experience with you. I am a woman now. Did you not understand what's happening up here? <laughs> Except I was just like, we can't, I don't know how we can be friends. And he just hung up, all confused. I don't ever know what happened to him. I tried looking him up, but his first and last name is very generic. And then I've been broken up with. And I was so thrilled because I didn't give a shit and I thought my first breakup would be this horrible, you know, crying, never getting over it thing. But I was like, okay. But I told my best friend's mom and she saw it as this first breakup. This is a kid, you know, I got to say something amazing here. And she says over the phone, she goes, hey, when one bus leaves, another bus comes like five minutes later. I didn't need consoling, but if I needed consoling, is that what adults do? That was horrible. And then I went downstairs to tell my parents that this isn't happening, you're not gonna see the Jew prize anymore. And they were just, you know, what, what feelings, what do we do with her feelings? And they didn't know what to do, so they go, sweetie, we'll drive you to get a Slurpee if you want. Now, I really liked Slurpees at the time, but they thought I was really upset and were offering me a Slurpee. <laughs> a Slurpee for a hand job that I didn't like. <laughs> so I, I got the Slurpee. <laughs> and I think it was like a week that I continued to, you know, pretend to be sad about it so I can get more Slurpees. I'm not an idiot. There is a happy ending to this story. <laughs> There is a happy ending. Uh, my fiance uh, is very happy with my up and down motions and um, I get it every time. Don't worry about me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
This is Risk. This is Niles behind me now. And we just heard from Hemda of Keith and the Girl. And before that, a little interstitial by Screamin' Jay Hawkins and myself with a little bit of editing work by Jeff Barr. Now, uh, how did everyone feel about last week's episode with just all of those interstitials and original songs and crazy sound collages looking back over the years? We're always very curious to hear what people think about this or that story or this or that element of the show. The way we usually hear that is over at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. We also have a subreddit called Risk Podcast. You can leave comments on the listen pages of each episode on our website at risk-show.com or you can email me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, on November 17th, the Risk Live Show is back at Caveat in New York City. It's 7 p.m. Eastern. It'll be simultaneously live-streamed on YouTube. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Brad Lawrence. A very beloved member of our team, Brad, is one of our story coaches. Actually, he wears a lot of hats around here. He hosted <laughs> that show at Caveat in October because I got a weird COVID notification from the government on my phone only minutes before the show was about to start, so I couldn't host the show that night. Brad jumped up hosted the show, and told this incredible story. So here is Brad Lawrence now with a story we call Chase Sequence. In 2018, I was hired by the New York Historical Society to host a storytelling open mic to coincide with their The Magical World of Harry Potter exhibit. And you may be asking yourself, what does Harry Potter have to do with the history of New York City? And the answer to that is that it got people to go to a history museum. All right? And more power to them because they paid me to go. And I went, and I actually went early so I could see the exhibit. And it was very, very cool. A lot of great special effects. It was really well done. You felt like you were wandering around Hogwarts. Very moody and very atmospheric until you got to the place where I was going to be doing my bit. And that was a blank fluorescent lit resource room in the attic. <laughs> and I got into this blank uh, resource room, and I was like, all right, you know what? I can make a Harry Potter-themed open mic happen in a blank resource room with fluorescent lights. That's not a, I, I am entirely confident in my abilities, and I felt that way until the participants began to arrive. Fifteen people sign up, and they all kind of trickled in in ones and twos, and then proceeded to look at anything but each other. They were looking at the floor, at their phones, like into the corner. They're like staring at the walls, and it's a blank. There's no, there's, it's a resource. There's nothing on the walls. All right? It's just like watching 15 people cosplay the end of the Blair Witch Project. 
right? And I would go over to people and try to introduce myself and be like, hi, I'm Brad, I'm going to be hosting tonight. And like the look they gave me and the way they recoiled, I might as well said, hello, I'm Voldemort and I'm here for your soul. Uh, and I, I, I looked at my wife. I was like, these people don't understand that when you go to an open mic, you are the entertainment, right? Like it's on you and your participation to like make this thing happen. And it didn't seem like they were game for that. And I looked to my wife, Cindy, who was there, because she always has good suggestions for this kind of situation. And she looked at me and she kind of shrugged and went, I don't know. And I was like, great, all right, awesome. And so I have no plan right until the moment I go up on stage to start this thing rolling. And everyone gathers in the seats. I get everyone sitting there, and they're all staring at me, and I still have no plan. And then I think, okay, wait. You know what? I was a giant nerd, and by many people's measures, still am. But as a, someone who grew up as a giant nerd, it occurred to me that I, I know how it feels to, when you feel like you're an outcast, and you feel like you don't know what to do with yourself. And I know that in those times, I have personally experienced how pop culture can be an escape, a much needed escape in those moments. And I have experienced that in my own life. And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to fall back on that, fall back on my own experience, and that's how I'm going to launch this thing. So I say to them, I think a lot of us have been through periods in our life where we don't know where we belong, and we don't know what our purpose is and what's special about us. And I think the notion that one day a letter could arrive and it would magically whisk you away to a place where all of those questions would be answered and you would have the support of these like noble characters would help you upon this journey of self-discovery and you would get that answer. You'd find out what was special about you and what your purpose was and what you had to contribute to the world. I think a story like that can feel like safe harbor when you are uncertain. And so do any of you have a story about where you were in your life when you encountered Harry Potter. And there is this 17-year-old goth muppet in the front row, uh, staring at the tips of her Doc Martens, and she raises her pale little white hand, and I'm like, great, come on up. And she comes up, and she says, I found Harry Potter when I was 11 years old, and uh, I have read the entire series 13 times through, and now I'm halfway through my 14th time. And even like the other Harry Potter nerds were like, that's a lot of Harry Potter. <laughs> but then she says, sixth grade was a really hard year. And everybody in the room, including my wife and I, we all nod. Two hours later, this is an entirely different group of people. Like these people who came in in like ones and twos, they are leaving this thing in groups of four and five. And they are now like chatting and talking to one another and they're laughing and they're exchanging email addresses and phone numbers and they're, they're joining one another's online Harry Potter fan groups. They're leaving as friends. And like every single person, I thought I could get, no one was gonna come up and, and tell a story. Every single one of them came up and talked about Harry Potter and talked more importantly about their lives. And and now they're all leaving as this big group of friends. And I looked at my wife and I was like, I think I did it. And she was like, you did it. And I looked at the person who hired me. I was like, I think we did it. And he was like, we did it. And it just felt like, like bringing these people together and bringing them out and like giving them this evening felt like a huge victory for me. And so my wife and I, we went and did what you do when you have a victory. We had tacos. <laughs> and we, uh, the tacos were good for the West 70s. And so, like, some mediocre tacos, and uh, three beers later, we're leaving the taco place, heading to the subway, and we're still kind of walking on air about what a good evening it was and how great that felt. 
Uh, and we're heading to the 72nd Street subway entrance. It's a big plaza there and a kiosk over the turnstiles. And we get to the plaza and it's packed. There's like a jammed full of people and my wife's in the lead and she's kind of weaving us through this crowd. And I notice at some point that there is kind of a, a, a large lurching figure off to the left and I don't really pay much attention to it until we get right past it and I get punched in the back twice. And I am walking away and they are glancing blows so I'm fine but I also know what it feels like to be punched so I turn around to see who has assaulted me and there's a six foot three homeless gentleman and I know that he's homeless because he's wearing a quilt as a cape and he is wearing no shoes and it is January um, and he's very tall and he's an African American gentleman with a face full of facial hair and soot and his hair is all like tied up in knots of bird bands and dirt and he is his bloodshot eyes they're just full of rage and fury and he is holding a stick with a metal tip over his head like this preparing to hit me with it and as he's coming at me he starts screaming at me Donald Trump you're Donald Trump motherfucker Donald Trump and he's coming at me with the stick and I put a hand up to kind of ward him off and he needs to swing at the hand and I whip the hand back and then he raises the stick and I put the hand back up and now my first instinct is to get this away from my wife so I start circling around him kind of towards the outside of the square and he's got a beat on me and he's following me and he's like still shouting and at this point Cindy who's like almost to the turnstiles realizes that I'm not there anymore and she turns around and sees me and she's like why are you messing with that homeless man? <laughs> And I'm like, because he has punched me twice and now he's trying to hit me with a stick. I'm afraid to turn my back on him. And she's like, really? I'm like, yes. And, and he's, he's still like trying to get a beat on me and trying to hit me with a stick. And he's still shouting about me being Donald Trump. And, I, and the thing is, like, I, I want to say to the guy, look, man, I'm with her. I voted Hillary. You know, but I don't think he's going to hear that. Right? I think like all this guy has is that what he knows is that a demon has been unleashed upon the nation. And that demon is tall and fair-haired and white, and I fit the profile, right? And so now he's going to do what any good American would do when confronted with a demon. He's going to hit it in the head with a stick. <laughs> and the thing is, like, I don't disagree with this guy's politics. I'm fucking on board, man. The problem is I'm not Donald Trump. Right? But by this time, I have circled all the way around the guy, and, and now I'm like back where I started, my back towards the kiosk, and then Cindy's there, and she grabs me by the shoulder, and she's like, we can outrun him. And so we take off, like heading for the turnstiles, and she's right, because he is like shuffle lunging after us, uh, because he's barefoot, and he's like sort of trying to shuffle along after us. We open up a great distance on this guy, and we get to the turnstiles, and now there are two kinds of New Yorkers. Uh, the first kind of New Yorker is the kind who knows that they're going to ride the subway. And so three blocks before they get to the subway, they have their subway pass in their hand. I am the first kind of New Yorker. My beloved wife is the second kind of New Yorker. She's the kind of New Yorker who gets to the subway turnstiles and then goes, oh yes, the subway. And then proceeds to like rifle through a giant bag trying to find the subway pass. And that's what she's doing now. And I'm like, you have got to hurry up. He is closing that distance. He is coming, still shouting, still the beat on me, like still coming at me. And I'm like, you have got to hurry up. And she's like, I am trying. And I'm like, come on, he's coming. And she's like, just go on through. And I'm like, I cannot leave you out here with the mentally ill man who has already assaulted me. And she stops and she looks at me and she looks at him and she says, oh no, he doesn't care about me at all. He only has eyes for you. <laughs> and with that, as if to prove her point, she takes three big steps to the left 
And he does not even glance her direction, right? Nothing. He just keeps coming right for me. And she's over to like now way over there, like going through her bag and he's coming at me and I'm like, ah, shit. And so I swipe myself through and I get to the other side of the turnstiles and then he goes right past her, even look in her direction, gets to the turnstiles and he's bumping up and get the turnstiles like a sparrow trapped in a living room. And he's like swinging the cane at me and, he, and he, I'm, I'm too far away. I have back all the way to the stairs and then he like throws the cane at me and his aim is shit and it just goes flying off to the side and then I'm standing like at the stairs watching him like try to get at me and then the train comes in and lets people off onto the platform and people are coming up the stairs now and as they do, one of the guys coming up the stairs, you know the dude, the beardy white guy, beardy white guy, the guy who walks into any situation and is absolutely certain he knows exactly what's happening and he's the guy to fix it. <laughs> and that guy walks right over the turnstiles the guy's bumping over the turnstile and he goes, I got you, buddy, and he swipes him through <laughs> and then heads smugly off into the night. And now the turnstile turns, that guy's on the same side of the turnstiles with me looking for his weapon. And this is when the kid arrives. Suddenly, I don't know where he came from. I guess he was somewhere watching all of this unfold. Suddenly, there is this kid between me and the homeless guy who was, who was gathering up his weapon. And I, I, like, I, he was, I call him a kid because if he could legally buy cigarettes, I'd be amazed. He was 17 tops. He was like a, like a Latino kid. I don't think he spoke any English. He didn't say anything the entire time. And he just puts one hand towards where the homeless guy is getting a stick and coming for me. And he turns to me and he starts doing this. Like, just run. Like, he's just sitting there for me to run. And I'm just staring at him, going, like, I am twice this kid's size. And he has just, for a stranger, put himself bodily between me and danger. And I'm just staring at him, kind of gobsmacked. And the homeless guy with the, the stick, he gets out the other thing, he gets to this guy. He just kind of starts to try to maneuver around him like he's an animate object. This kid's, like, warding him off and sitting for me to run. I'm like, I can't just, like, leave this kid here with this guy. And then I'm just... Staring at him, and my wife finally gets out through the turnstiles. He shows up, and she grabs me by the sleeve, and she looks at the kid, and she goes, thank you so much. And she throws me down the steps onto the platform. And we get to the platform, and a train's pulling in, and the door's open, and I start to get on, and Cindy's like, no, further. And so we run down the platform, and at the last possible second, we jump onto the train, and the door's closed, and we're away. And we're just staring at one another now, just no idea what to say, just dumbfounded. We're like... Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross at the end of The Graduate if her wedding had been an assault by a homeless, uh, mentally ill person. And we're just staring at one another, and we get to 42nd Street, and we have to transfer to the end train, and we get off onto the platform, and we're just, like, too stupid to, like, figure out our way around anything. We're, like, looking around, and we're standing there, and then we hear, Donald Trump, motherfucker, he had made the train! <laughs> And we turn around, we're like, shit! And we just like run for the nearest stairwell. It is, of course, a dead end. And we turn back around, go back to the platform. You Donald Trump motherfucker! And I'm like, shit! And then the, another train, an express train, pulls in. And we jump onto the express train. And the doors close, and we are off. We spend the entire ride back to Brooklyn, wondering if, like, when we get off in Brooklyn, are we going to get off and I'm just going to hit in the head with a stick, and that's going to be the end of the evening and me. And we get to Brooklyn, the doors open, nothing happens. He didn't make that train. We got home safe, and we never saw that guy again. But in the intervening three years, I have thought about that night a lot, trying to make some kind of sense out of all the things that happened in that night. And I'm still kind of a long way from doing that, I guess. 
I'm going to give you the best I've come up with so far. And that's that I encountered three kinds of people that night. And the first kind were the people that I could help. And that was that group of Harry Potter people at the, at the open mic. And like that event, no matter what else happened that night, I look back on that and it fills me full of warmth and joy that that event went so well and those people all walked out of there as friends. And I have done workshops for C-suite executives in Madrid and like conventions of 400 people and those 15 people still feel like the greatest victory to me. I still love that night and think back on that so fondly. And those are the people I could help. And then there was the guy who tried to hit me in the head with a stick. And I just think about him, and I just think about, like, this. here's this guy who is, he is mentally ill, and he is vulnerable, and he is on the edges of a society that has just had hatred and division and racism and cruelty just washing off it in sheets for the four years leading up to that moment. It's just been coming off, and he's been standing on the edges of our society just this sponge absorbing it all and trying to make sense of a world that seems like it's falling apart, even to, the, even to those of us who are the most even-keeled. And I guess this was the sense he could make of it. And I could not help that guy. He was the one I could not help. He was beyond me. But then there's the person who tried to help me. That kid. That kid who, in spite of not speaking a language in common with me, not being from the same place, not really knowing what the whole narrative was, probably, just saw someone in danger and threw himself into the middle of it. He did the most human thing, and he was the only human who did. <laughs> you know, the place was packed that night, and he jumped into the breach. And as this time in our country, it just seems to drag on forever. Like, I've, even now that Trump's out of office, it's still physically it's just dragging on the sense of division and being rent asunder. It just keeps going. And I think, like, is there any hope for us? And if there is any hope for us, it lies with that kid. That hope lives in him. That's my story. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is R.E.M. behind me now, and we just heard from Brad Lawrence, who you can find on Instagram at bradlaw77. And the next live show that will be recorded at 
that caveat, just like that one you were hearing there from Brad, that was the October one. Well, the November one is on November 17th. It is at Caveat, New York City. It's 7 p.m. Eastern. It'll be simultaneously live-streamed on YouTube. You can get your tickets for the in-person show or for the live-stream at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling training or, you know, creativity coaching over at kevinallison.com? I've helped folks prepare their memoirs, their solo shows, new podcasts, projects, wedding toasts, stories to share in job interviews, personal essays for applications for things. That is all at kevinallison.com. I also do special personalized video messages for people. That is over at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. You can follow Risk on our socials on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And of course, don't forget to check out our school as well at thestorystudio.org. Folks, Today is the day. Take a risk. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine.